there will be no end. Last uh, Sunday, we spoke about the continuity of the kingdom. The continuity of the kingdom, seeing this reference to the throne of David. To the throne of David. It's a historical reference. And we saw that the kingdom of God is not a legend. It's not a myth. It's not a fable. It's not just a philosophical construction to help us sort of individually apply and live in our best possible way now. No. We saw last Sunday that the kingdom of God is a historical reality. It is a promise that God gave in the Garden of Eden that one day His seed, His Messiah, His King would come. And then we saw in very broad strokes, naturally for the sake of time, but we saw how this kingdom promise advanced through the figure of Abraham. And then from Abraham to the patriarchs and on to the tribes that would form the nation of Israel. And then we saw in the figure of King David and the covenant with David that God promised that there would be a greater king, greater than David, whose kingdom would be forever. Um, and then we made the connection from the promise of Abraham that continued through the kingdom of Israel to Messiah, the covenant of grace in Christ Jesus, and how these promises come to fulfillment in Christ Jesus through the gospel evangelization to all nations. And that's what we want to concentrate on today. We're asking, do you recognize the increase of God's kingdom? Because it says it here in Isaiah 9, of the increase of His government, there will be no end. Do you recognize the kingdom's increase? What is the nature of the increase and the prosperity of God's kingdom? There are many today that in a misunderstanding of God's kingdom equate, identify the increase of the kingdom, <clears throat> the prosperity of the kingdom with my own prosperity, with material wealth, with success and happiness in this world. They look at these promises such as this of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end, and they mistakenly apply it to the increase of my own power and influence, to the increase of my success and wealth. And we want to ask this morning, what is the nature of God's king? This morning, what is the nature of God's kingdom? What is the meaning of this increase? And upon learning about it, we ask as well, have you become a joyful, a celebratory, a happy participant in the kingdom's increase? Or are you still struggling, like many Christians are still, especially when we are touched by suffering? When we are touched by suffering, by adversity, by pain, and it goes on in our lives, then we wonder, but where is God's kingdom? 
Where is God's power? Where is God's government? How is God ruling in my life? See how it is important to understand what the nature of God's kingdom is and its increase and its prosperity? And here is the thesis of what we want to say. That the nature of God's kingdom increase has to do with God extending his rule beyond the nation of Israel and gathering from all the nations his people into one body. That is the universal church. That the increase of, the, of his government that is being referred here has to do with the extension, the universal gathering of all the nations into one nation, together with Israel, into one body that is the universal church. That's what has been known as the Catholic Church in the pure and plain sense of the word. Catholic meaning universal. That the kingdom of God, which in the Old Testament resided in Jerusalem, in the Old Testament was established with the kingdom of Israel. God had a plan to blow it up, to extend it, to lengthen and whiten out its scope, to make it prosperous, to have a kingdom extend and be great throughout the globe. And that is the kingdom of the universal church, the body of Christ. So let us begin there with that promise as we see in Isaiah 9 and go make your way to Isaiah 54, where we opened up the scriptures this morning to begin the service. And notice the promise there as well. The promise of this prosperity, fruitfulness, increase. Verse uh, Isaiah 54, beginning in verse 1. Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not labored with child. Notice the picture here is of a sterile, barren, without child woman. Where have we seen this before? Do you remember? Where has this motif of barrenness, of childlessness, has appeared before in the Word of God? Yeah. In, if you notice, all the women of the patriarchs were, had problems with what? With fertility. They, they were sterile. They were barren. And this is a redemptive motif. God did this on purpose. Because God gave the promise to Abraham. And the promise that God made was that God would bring a seed. If you notice in Isaiah 9, it says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This is not going to be performed by the arm of man. God is now raising a kingdom that the arm of man, the power of man, or the way, the methodology, the values of flesh builds up. No, this is the kingdom of God. 
And God has a way of building his kingdom in such a way that it is revealed that the zeal, the arm of the Lord will perform it. And for that, he sets up, if you notice, in the patriarchal narratives, he sets up this motif, this theme of barrenness. Women without children. And yet, these are families to whom God has made a promise. God made the promise to Abraham, and he continued on to Isaac. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And yet these women began with a closed womb. They could not bear children. There was a problem of barrenness, of infertility. And this was a spiritual lesson, illustration that God wanted to bring. It is a redemptive theme. Or we could also say a copy, a shadow of what would happen. Women representing the failure, the failure of the flesh to bear children for the glory of God. The failure of the flesh to create a nation unto the glory of God, to build a city unto the glory of God. Ever since the first Eve and Adam fell, which their job was to do just that. God said, be fruitful, multiply, and take dominion. That's what he told Adam and Eve, right? Before sin, God made the first couple able to bear fruit in terms of procreating, begetting children. But it was not just the physical fruitfulness. There was also the mandate to have dominion, spiritual dominion. The mandate to face the enemy, the old serpent, and to overcome by faithfulness to the word of God and obedience to overcome the enemy and thus extend God's dominions from the Garden of Eden to cover the whole earth. That is God. That was God's revealed plan, intention in the Garden of Eden in the Genesis story. Now, has God given up on his plan? Did, did the serpent and did the fall catch God by surprise? We know that that is not the case. That even though that was the mandate, that this mandate to have fruitfulness of God, this mandate to finally extend and for the glory of God to cover the earth would be fulfilled. But it would not be fulfilled through the arm of man, through the arm of the flesh. It would be fulfilled through the seed that was promised. Hence, notice in the prophet Isaiah, over 700 years before Christ, you have promises of the increase of his government. The government of Christ, the dominion, the rule of Christ. And what are the implications of that? That the women who were barren, the women who could bear no child, and these patriarchal wives stand for humanity, for the womb of humanity, humanity in slavery, not being able to be fruitful 
to the glory of God. And what is God's promise? Well, notice here. For more are the children of the desolate, of the barren woman, than the children of the married woman. Wow. Says the Lord. And now the Lord quotes here, not quote, the Lord gives in his empire, inspired scripture, a passage that has been misunderstood and misapplied. Enlarge the place of your tent. And let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your courts and strengthen your stakes. Every false prophet, prosperity preacher uses this passage to announce your wealth, financial success, and prosperity. See, it's right there. God wants you to enlarge your business. God wants you to enlarge your wallet. God wants you to uh, increase your bank account. And he has nothing to do with that. It is the promise to a race, a humanity, and a people that have fallen into captivity and cannot bear fruit unto God, cannot receive the riches of the kingdom, have been now in prison, taken captive, unable to live to the glory of God, unable to be filled with the glory of God. And God says, you know what? Even though this has been your story, and it's a story of barrenness, of fruitlessness, it's a story of captivity, it's a story not, it's a story not of increase, but of decrease, of failure, I have a promise and the promise is enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Strengthen your stakes. Why? Verse 3. For you shall expand to the right and to the left. And your descendants will inherit the nations. And make the desolate cities inhabited. Now, we have another challenge here, interpretive challenge. Does this apply to the Jews only? Because obviously, this is in the Old Testament Jewish canon, right? This is another challenge. Does this apply to the Jews only? You already know better than that, because understanding the continuity of history, you know that the promise of God to Abraham was that in his seed, all the nations of the world would be, would be blessed. So the promise of the kingdom is that in the promised seed, there would be an expansion. There would be an increase. There would be a prosperity. Of what kind? Of what kind? Let's now look at the fulfillment in the New Testament where this scripture is quoted. Go to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4. In Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is making a contrast comparison between the old covenant and the new covenant. Between the children in the flesh, meaning those who are Jews... By natural descent, he is making reference to the historical giving of the law 
but he is contrasting it with those who are children, not by natural descent, but by spiritual regeneration and adoption through the gospel. And interestingly, we don't have time to deal with the whole passage, but he uses the analogy of Hagar. Remember Hagar? Hagar was that woman that was introduced by Sarah when she couldn't bear children. When she couldn't bear children, she said, we need to help God. We need to come up with a plan so that we could make the promise of God come to fulfillment. So Hagar had Ishmael, which is a child, not a promise, but of the flesh. It's a child of the flesh, meaning it, he was not the child provided by the arm and the zeal and the promise of the Lord, but it was a child created in a way, sought after, produced by the scheming and the devising of the flesh, of human reasoning, of human control, power. So notice now, with that in mind, notice what Paul says and what scripture he's going to quote. Beginning in verse, um, beginning verse 24, beginning verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. Oh. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. The bondwoman was the servant that was Hagar. Hmm? The child that was born of that woman was according to the flesh because he was not the child of promise. They just wanted to do their part. <laughs> they wanted to bring the promise to fulfillment and force it because they're getting old and they're past the age of childbearing. And they don't have any descendants. So they go on and have Ishmael. But he, he is born of the free woman through promise. That is of Sarah, of Abraham's wife, to whom the promise had been made. And now notice how the Holy Spirit uses this story. Verse 24, which things are symbolic, which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants. Whoa, it, it gets really deep here, right? These are the two covenants. What are the two covenants? Notice, the one from Mount Sinai, where or what covenant, what covenant was given on Mount Sinai? The covenant with who? With Moses. The covenant with Moses or the covenant of law. The covenant of law. The covenant that says, if you do these things, you will live. If you obey all the words written in the law, you will be blessed. But if you disobey, you will be cursed. And we know that that covenant had a reference to blessings and cursings in the land but it was a covenant that highlighted the blessings and cursings of humanity before god and their failure 
to keep the covenant of obedience, of righteousness, of law for God. So, so that whoever wants to live by the Mosaic covenant, meaning by the works of the law, by the obedience of that covenant, the Apostle Paul says here, you are acting like Hagar. You are in a position now as one that is in prison bearing children that are in slavery. Notice what he goes on to say. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is. This Hagar is, for this is Hagar, meaning, meaning those that are living or want to live by the works of the law, by your own obedience, by the Mosaic covenant. You say, Pastor, but isn't that the Jews only? Well, I want to uh, submit to you that there is a version of that for Gentiles, <laughs> which has to do with, well, I am a good person, right? I think that I have been a good person and that God will, must receive me on the basis of my goodness. On the basis of my works, I've been a good father, a good husband, a good citizen. So God should receive me. Notice, that is the voice of the child of Hagar, the production of slavery. That's what God is saying. Because God is saying, I'm going to build my kingdom and extend it, not through your own obedience and works. Not of your own doing and performance as Sarah tried to do with Hagar. And she got Ishmael who was not a child of the promise. So now Paul, by the Holy Spirit, equates that manner of production, that manner of prosperity, that manner of fruitfulness with slavery and with the Mosaic Covenant. It bears children unto slavery. But, but, okay, so for this, again, verse 25. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is. Hebrews, uh, Galatians is written in the first century, right, A.D. And the Holy Spirit is saying that the Jews of the first century in Jerusalem who want to live by the Mosaic law, they are in what condition? In slavery. In slavery. They are in slavery. They correspond to Hagar. Jerusalem, first century Jerusalem, was in slavery. They did not recognize the visitation of their Messiah. Oh, Jesus Christ wept over them, wept. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you as the hen gathers his chickens, but you would not. They did not receive the visitation of their Lord, of their Messiah. They rejected Christ Jesus and crucified him. And they continue on this path of thinking that they are the children of Abraham, 
because they obey the law, because they keep covenant with God. And God says, if that is the case, you are in bondage. You are in bondage. So notice again the status, the condition of Jews apart from Christ. What do they need? They need Christ. There is no blessing in Israel, family. There is no blessing with the Jews by virtue of their ethnicity. This is something that offends a lot of people. Because as you remember last week, I said that people get obsessed with Israel, right? As if Israel was somehow the mediatorial blessing unto the nations. And where do they base it on? Because to Abraham he was said, whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. But it was not said to Abraham in the flesh. It was said to Abraham because he was given the covenant of promise. He was given the covenant of promise. He was given the covenant that in the seed there would be blessing. Those who are blessed are those who are of the faith of Abraham who are blessed because they receive the promise of Messiah. The promise of the seed, the blessing and the riches of the kingdom in Christ Jesus. And that is exactly what Paul says here. He says, that, uh, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is. And is in bondage with her children. It's in bondage with her children. Verse 26. But the, but the Jerusalem above is free. The Jerusalem above is free. The Jerusalem below is not. The Jerusalem above is free. And how does this Jerusalem come into being? Notice what it says. The Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother... Of us all. And now this Jerusalem is identified with a mother, with a woman figure. And this woman figure is the bride of Christ. It's that woman that now begets children. Because now she is pregnant with children. Now she is growing. She's expanding. She's fruitful. Again, she has been delivered from her state of barrenness. And what is quoted for this, for this reality, what, notice, what Old Testament passage is quoted for this reality? For it is written, Isaiah 54, verses 1 through 3, right? For it is written, what is written? That the Jerusalem above is free, not the Jerusalem below. So that takes care of that interpretive knot. Oh, this applies to Israel. That Israel will expand. That Israel will be the nation at the top. And at the head and not the tail. No, it is not Israel in the flesh. It is Israel from above. It is Jerusalem from above that will expand. And the Holy Spirit applies it here to who? 
For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Verse 28, Now we, brethren, as Isaac, as Isaac was, are children of the promise. We. Who is we? Galatians. Are Galatians Jews or Gentiles? They're Gentiles. They're not Jews. They're Gentiles. They're barbarians. <laughs> as Gentiles and barbarians as you could possibly find. We are children of promise. We are the Jerusalem from above. And why does the apostle have to tell the Galatians this? Because they were being seduced by some teachers from Jerusalem that if they wanted to come into the kingdom and to be saved and to receive the promises, they had to become circumcised. They had to obey the law. And the apostle Paul here says, no. For by the works of the law, no man shall be justified. And the children of the law are children unto slavery. It is those who are the children of faith, the children of Abraham, who are those that are according to the promise. Now, let's do it backwards in another passage. Go to Romans to see the same truth. Go to Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9... <clears throat> In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul has, been, has begun to talk about Israel rejecting the Messiah, and he enters into a discourse that has to do with his brothers in the flesh and how eventually they are coming back into the folds. And they are being saved too, but God has a plan that enlarges, as we saw in Galatians, citing Isaiah, enlarges the curtains to allow for others to come into the kingdom, into one body, into one nation, into one universal church or assembly. And notice how he explains it here in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 23. Romans 9, beginning in verse 23. And that he might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which He had prepared beforehand for glory. God's children are vessels of what? Of mercy. You're not a vessel of... You're not a vessel of merit. You're a vessel of mercy. One of the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church throughout the Middle Ages is the treasury of merits. The church has a treasury of merits. No, no, no. The church has a well of mercy. A well of grace. There is no merit with any single one of us, including Mary. No merit whatsoever. That is the Christian faith. Whoever wants to ascribe merit to anyone in the church, to any human person in the flesh, other than the God-man, Christ Jesus, 
finds himself back in the Jerusalem below and back in slavery and back under the curse of God. It is as serious as that. This is not just semantics. This is not just a, a religious squabble. This is not just something to gloss over and get over our differences. No, no. This is the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is, have you found in Christ and in Christ alone the only treasury of merits for your soul? Or have you fallen back into slavery because you begin to assign merit where only mercy should be assigned? This was the Roman Catholic teaching of the Middle Ages and how it became codified into a system of what? Of penance, of earning merit, of increasing your justification. This is how these hierarchical systems that claim that only within their ranks salvation is found. They assign it to the ranks of the meritorious. The ranks of the meritorious. One of the, one of the most glaring sins of these bodies is the merit of Mary. The meritorious, ever-blessed Virgin Mary. Hence, we go to Christ through her. We go to Christ through her. There is nothing more blasphemous, more injurious to the cause of the kingdom than that doctrine. There's nothing that has brought more harm to the nations, more obscurity, obscurantism, to the nations of the world, to the nations of Latin America and South America, to the nations of Europe, than the obscurantism of the Roman Catholic Church, and might I add as well, the Greek Orthodox Church. Why? Why? Pastor, why are you so radical on that point? Shouldn't we just get along with them? Yes, get along with them for their salvation. Not because we share in the same faith. We do not. Whoever is trusting in the merits of Mary, of Mary, whoever is trusting in the treasury of merits of the church, whoever is somehow trusting and finding the intercession of the arm of men to find grace, to find shelter and refuge toward God, is back in slavery, has not come to the freedom of the Christian, to the freedom of Christ. But whoever trusts in Christ and believes in Him shall be free indeed. Shall be free indeed. And notice then, vessels of mercy. That's what we are. That's what we proclaim. There's no, don't look to me. I am just a vessel of mercy, a vessel of mercy. 
I'm not a vessel of merit. No, no. I am not increasing my justification working. I am not trying to come into good terms with God by my work. Because that would be to live by the law and to be separate from Christ. Oh, I want to please the Lord. I want to obey Him. I want to follow Him because of the mercy that He has shown me. I want to serve Him out of gratitude. As a matter of fact, I am free to do so because I've been delivered from my condemnation once and for all in the sacrifice of Christ, of which we shall have a remembrance and a symbol today. We're not re-sacrificing Christ through the merits of the church for your salvation. If you believe that, go back to Rome and their communion. That is not what we do. We do not re-sacrifice Christ as the Mass does. As the Greek Orthodox Eucharist claims to do. We do not. Christ is not in the bread and in the wine being changed in, in there in the elements upon your participation so that you may live. He is not. Christ gave his flesh and blood for you and rose to the right hand of the Father and now says, as you partake of this, I am present with you spiritually, covenantally, in the remembrance of the gospel present through faith for your edification, in the assurance of gospel truth for your growth. So notice, communion has that importance as well as baptism because you're being baptized into a confession of a particular faith. See, these are things that matter. They're not being proclaimed anymore. Number one, because it's controversial and we're going to lose people. But we don't care about losing people. And matter of fact, we care about lost people getting saved. We care about the truth. We care about you not being swayed by different winds of doctrine and somebody coming to you and singing a song and dance of liturgy, of beautiful external things, of cathedrals and popes and hierarchies and bishops and beautiful external power and glory. No. We preach to you Christ and Him crucified and Christ alone. Is that the faith that you have embraced? If it is, be baptized in the name of Christ. Sit at the table with full conviction of who you are in Christ, that you are complete in Him. That in Him we have found mercy, which He had prepared beforehand for glory. Now notice, verse 24, we finish here. Even us whom He called, not of the Jews only, but also... Of the Gentiles. How clear is that? As he says also in Hosea. Hosea. 
I will call them my people who were not my people. I will call them my people. You, God has called his people who were not his people. And her beloved who was not beloved. Beloved who was not beloved. He calls you his people. But you were not historically his people. Ethnically his people. And yet he calls you his people now together with the Jews. He calls you beloved even though you were not at first beloved. And you were outside and away from the covenants a promise that we're in the nation of Israel. But yet, it was said to them, you're not by people. Where it was said, it shall come to pass, verse 26, in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called sons of the living God. Folks, this is how we know the kingdom has come. Next Sunday, we're going to pick it up right here. It has been expanded in the prosperity that God is reaping from all nations. You know, you are God's prosperity. Do we rejoice in, in the kingdom expansion and work and fruitfulness? Look around. The prosperity of God is that sinners come to salvation. From all nations, tribes, and tongues, the prosperity of God, which was the mystery hidden before the ages, is that God would raise one nation of all the nations of the world and reconcile both Jews and Gentiles into one body. And this, by the arm and the zeal of the Lord, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this is this the faith that we profess? Do we rejoice in this faith? Are we comforted by the prosperity of the kingdom? By the extension of the kingdom? Do we joyfully participate in it? Do we joyfully participate in it? As we gather, that's, that's joyfully participating in it. We want to see God's kingdom deepen and expand. Are we bearing witness to family and friends of this kingdom? I'm afraid that the church has become more and more insecure about who we are. When the gospel is not the sole conviction of the soul, you're going to go right back to the Jerusalem from below. Because that's what the flesh knows and understands. The power of my good works. Of my own justification. Of my own righteousness. Uh, but he who has been redeemed wants to be found not having our own righteousness of our own, but the righteousness of Christ. If that is you, I invite you now to take the elements who is the Lord stable for? Who is the Lord stable for? For those that have confessed this faith. You confess this faith in word and in baptism. And thus you are joined 